1: Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone. When I'm asked about the top five skills that people need to develop for their career longevity, I usually start with things like resilience, curiosity, adaptability, and I end up always with the ability to sell, persuade, and influence. Pick any one of those words you want. To me, they mean the same thing. And I think it's perhaps one of the most important capabilities that you need to nurture for your career. Now, you may be thinking about classic sales job, however, that's not what I mean. Instead, I want you to think about the ability to sell yourself, the ability to sell your brand, the ability to persuade leaders to back an idea, and the ability to influence people to make a change. That's the secret sauce. It turns out also, a, well, a little-known piece of research, that that ability to sell change is directly related to scorecard measures, so it's performance driving at the end of the day. Whenever I talk, whatever I'm talking about, we mention that word persuasion, influence, and all I get is more, please, more, please, more, please, more, please. It seems that we don't get enough on how to influence, persuade, and sell. So today's specialist is exactly that. Um, Scott Miller is my guest, 25 year career as the chief marketing officer and executive vice president of business development at the Franklin Covey um, Group. And he's a senior advisor now currently on Thought Leadership. He's leading the strategy and development of the firm's Speakers Bureau, as well as the publication of their podcast, webcast, and their best-selling books. He also sponsors or runs, hosts, the Franklin Covey-sponsored On Leadership podcast with Scott Miller, which I can highly recommend, particularly the episode featuring me, just for the record. (laughs) It's a great podcast, please. And it's one of the world's largest and fastest-growing leadership podcasts, reaching over 6 million people weekly. Scott also authors a leadership column for Inc. and one for Utah Business. And he's the author of the Mess to Success series. Including management mess to leadership success, the brand new marketing mess to brand success, and a forthcoming job mess to career success. And he's the co author of a Wall Street Journal bestseller, Everyone Deserves a Great Manager, as well as the author of the Master Mentors series, which is coming out soon. So, Scott, and if Scott hasn't done enough in doing all this, I should say he started his career at the Disney Development Company, which I think is fascinating and three sons living in Salt Lake City. Scott, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Wanda. I mentioned we just, my wife and I just moved uh, from A Street to B Street in Salt Lake City. So only a block away, but we're living in the midst of boxes today. So if you see an errant box fly by, you'll know that someone's helping me unpack today.
1: Good for you. Now you like major change rapidly from A to B.
2: (laughs) I do. (laughs) It was actually a pretty big change even though it was a street away, but we wanted to keep our boys in the same neighborhood, so we. Um, we, we I'm not sure if we went up street or down street. I'm not sure, A to B.
1: <laughs> That's great. It's nothing like being able to walk in the neighborhood, see the house that you want, where you want to go, find it's on the market, and off you go to it. All
2: right. No, no, no. The worst part is people who bought our house are putting in a swimming pool that I promised my boys the whole time we lived there. So I'm living with that nightmare of my boys reminding me every day the new owners <laughs> are putting in the pool. I lied
1: about. (laughs) Okay. Let's see. Those boys have gotten selling change really well. (laughs) You've been teaching them. Okay. Let's get down to the book, Marketing Mess to Brand Success. And it's not so much brand that I'm interested in talking about as it is this notion of marketing. And for me, marketing is marketing and selling. But before I go into that, let's talk about you. This marketing mess, your mess series. So what's the question? Why this thing about messes? And you always say, why do you say own your mess? Explain to me what you're thinking.
2: Yeah, because like you, Wanda, I mean, I've been reading books and interviewing uh, uh, authors and being uh, an author myself, and there's very few books that are really transparent and vulnerable about the underbelly of leadership or marketing or sales, right? It's always the triumphs and the successes, at least for the most part. And after you know, 30 years, 25 of which I've been in a formal leadership role, 10 of which as an officer in a global public company, I realized there was some great value in teaching through your mess. I think philosophically people learn better when they're struggling and growing when they're challenged, when they're failing even. And I think that as a leader, when you own your mess, you make it safe for others to own theirs. So I decided to spend the last half of my career, not just gratuitously confessing my mistakes, but really identifying the the messes that I'd seen others fall into, or in most cases, myself, and being vulnerable and humble enough, confident enough, really, to talk about them, teach through them so that other people can learn from them and either own their mess or circumvent their mess because they learned from mine.
1: I love that idea of asking senior leaders, what are your messes? I think I'm going to adopt that question. I often say to senior leaders when I'm interviewing internally for a program or an event or whatever, I often ask them to talk about some of their biggest setbacks. Yeah. I couch that in very cautious language so that we can talk about things that the market did to you, that a customer did to you, or maybe you did yourself. I'm going to change it now, Scott. I'm going to say, I too. what's your mess? What's the biggest mess you made and what did you get out of it?
2: And if they can't answer that, then they're not as self-aware I vulnerable leader who really cares about growing and coaching people, right? Some of the that's best right. leaders I've reported to are the wealthiest, most accomplished, but I confess a mistake and they say, come here, let me tell you about what I did when I was, you know, and that's like, so it's not just comforting, but it really creates a, a, a culture where it's okay to take risks and make some mistakes as long as you own them and talk about them and learn from them. Don't repeat them and then teach from them.
1: Right. Right. I've never found a leader who hasn't confessed to multiple, by the way. Sometimes they won't quite take accountability for having done it all themselves, but that's okay. Reality, too. Um, And I find it I do it because I find other people need to realize that this leader has never gotten it all perfectly. And it's okay. It's part of the culture. It's part of your own career growth. All right. right. Now, you said in the opening of your book, which I love, by the way, that you're always in persuasion mode. What do you mean by that?
2: Well, I, I mentioned it kind of tongue-in-cheek because one of my coaches, this happens to be a speech coach, she was criticizing me. She was actually saying, Scott, you're always in influence mode, selling mode, persuasion mode. She didn't mean that as a compliment, but I <laughs> took it so, as such. But it was a good point because it's true. As a you 30-year, know, three-decade sales leader and chief marketing officer, the fact of the matter is, I am always in influence mode. I am always in persuasion mode. I am trying to get my boys to see things through my lens. I'm trying to convince my wife to go to dinner at this restaurant and at that restaurant. So I think all of us, to some extent, are always in, when we're not listening, which we should be more, we're in that role of trying to persuade others. That's the whole basis of marketing is to build a brand, build a perception, build a reality, and then persuade people to adopt that. And so I think it's just a, a straight up call out that's true, where most of us are always in some kind of role where we're trying to persuade or influence other people to take action, do something we want them to do, vote this way, regulate that way. I think it's a, I think it's, um, it's a call out that's you know, sort of good and bad, right? Because when you are in persuasion mode, you're not in learning mode, you aren't in listening mode, you're not in absorption mode. So there's a good balance there, but self-awareness goes a long way on this one.
1: Yeah, it's interesting um, because I don't believe you can persuade if you don't listen. It's almost like you have to listen in order to know how to persuade.
2: I agree with you in the long term. I think we both know leaders can persuade in many ways in the short term, utility power, coercive power, principle-centered power. But you're right, if you want to build a sustainable brand, reputation, trust between people. You can't persuade or sell people if you haven't listened to what is their point of view, what is their fear, what is their passion. Really, marketing is about persuading people to hire your product or service to solve the problem that they have, right? As Clayton Christensen would have said, what is the job to be done? So if you've listened intently to what is the client's problem, then perhaps you've earned the trust to persuade them to hire your solution to solve their problem. Otherwise, you're just guessing, right, what their problem is.
1: I love Clayton Christian's work, and I, um, it's such a simple thing. What's the job to be done? But it, it's one we rarely actually stop and completely address, whether it's influencing inside the organization or influencing outside in a market. What are people trying to get done? And Understanding that, and then how am I going to help them do that job as opposed to buy the product that I have already? Okay, I want to talk for a minute about maybe an unfair topic. Um, In most organizations, there's the sales force and there's the marketing team. And a bystander, just thinking logically, would think that those two should be sort of part of the same department. I mean, the sales team uses what the marketing puts out and marketing, I mean, they should work together. Most of my clients, though, however, they are frequently at odds with each other. Do you have any perspective on this one that's going to help us? Yeah.
2: Well, you know that question because you've read the book. I have a great passion about it. I think after having been uh, a three-decade professional in the leadership development world, the number one, I think, biggest cancer in every organization is gossip. Hmm. I think the number two biggest cancer is the misalignment between sales and marketing, is this constant frustration that the board or CEO has that she can't get her sales vice president and her marketing vice president to collaborate and be self-aware and to work well together because when they have tension, their teams have tension. The book really probably is going to be well-received by sales leaders, maybe even more so than marketing leaders because as a marketing CMO, I take marketing to task to say, when I was the CMO, and by the way, I was a named executive officer in a public company, right? So I was equivalent to the chief revenue officer, same pay, same title, same everything. But I consciously, Wanda, um, deferred to that person because I saw marketing as a support role to sales. I share a story in the book around the famous Jazz Utah jazz basketball team. John Stockton and Karl Malone, there was a famous sort of Stockton to Malone quote. One of John Stockton's jobs, if you will, was to get the ball up to the net. So the different talented, taller player, Karl Malone could, you know, dunk it in. I see marketing as Stockton. I see sales as Malone. And so to your point, in any organization where you have finger pointing, where you have blaming, where you have backstabbing, this is a cancer. Marketing and sales, first and foremost, have to be led by leaders who trust and respect each other. And generally speaking, sales has to trust that marketing has some brand, brand equity responsibilities. But Mainly, they need to be in a sales boat, rowing with them in the same direction. That may be insulting to some marketing people, but I do think that marketing is there to serve sales, not the other way around.
1: All right. Well, I'm going to mush these two together as if they were part of the same package, because what I'm interested in learning from you um, is sort of some key insights from your messes and successes around persuasion, influence, selling, using the generic meaning of the word selling, not the specific marketing version of the selling or the specific sales version. So let me start with a couple, and I want to talk about this both first from a business point of view, and then I'm going to turn it and talk about it from an internal point of view, you know, sort of selling myself. And your number one mess or mistake, you say, quote, it's the customer stupid. Okay, now, most of us know at the end of the day, yes, of course, it's the customer, but geez, do we forget it all the time? So why is this so hard?
2: Well, it's, it's a natural culture of every organization, right? is that gravitational pull inwards towards your mission, your goals, your profitability. It's, I quote a book, I think Gordon Mackenzie wrote it called Orbiting the Giant Hairball. Yep. Wonderful book, right? In yep. essence, it's the story of how Shoebox greeting cards became to being inside of Hallmark, the much more conservative greeting card company. And, and uh, Shoebox was more, avant-garde and that they had to orbit the hairball, which was Hallmark, kind of dip in for resources and dip back out, but not get sucked in. I think marketing is the same way as it is your responsibility to be the same voice in the company, to talk about what the customer needs, what does the market need. And I think great leaders sometimes get sucked into their own hairball, right? Their mission, mm. their values, their purpose. Well, there is no mission without margin, there's no purpose without customers and clients. So I don't think it's a dramatization to say every leader falls into this trap. We're naturally going to be focusing on our inward problems. And we need to be reminding each other that it's about the customer stupid. And that may sound harsh, but I share a story as you read from the 1992 presidential campaign where Bill Clinton and Al Gore had in their war room with James Carville and Paul Begala the sign, it's the economy, stupid, right? That was their value prop against the incumbent President Bush 41. And so for me, it was just a call to action to recognize you will get sucked into the hairball. And I think above all, it's marketing's responsibility to stay connected to the client's need and to remind people to talk about, to listen, to focus on the customer and don't get absorbed in the natural gravitational pull to focus on your purpose, your mission, your values. Those are important things. And when those become your focus, clients don't need you. Right. Quite frankly, clients don't care about your mission. (laughs) Clients don't care about your values. I mean, they do to a certain extent. They care about, to quote you, how are you solving their problem?
1: Right. Great book, Orbiting the Giant Hairball, one of my all-time favorite books because it's a wonderful metaphor and a great example of where you need the resources but you don't want to get sucked into the processes. I see so many people inside organizations who, regardless the function, regardless where you are, you get absorbed by the processes or recently, believe it or not, one of my clients get absorbed by the hierarchy, even though in today's world, we think that should be flat. It's not. I get absorbed into it. I get stuck into that and I forget what we're here to do what we're here to do for the organization internally that I'm serving and for the client externally that I'm serving as well, and for our employees sometimes, even for that matter. Okay, let's see two other changes that are actually related to this one. Um, right now, as we're talking about, challenge number 16, never forget you have two buyers. What do you mean?
2: Yeah, so I really want to bring an awareness that you've got your external buyer, your client, but you also have your internal buyer, and your internal customer. And, you know, as a chief marketing officer, my internal buyers were the board, the CEO, the CFO, the chief revenue officer, and in many cases, four or five general managers that ran, you know, multi-million dollar office, offices, right? Asia-Pac and EMEA and South America. So one of the genius strategies that I share in the book, not genius because I'm genius because it's just a hard-earned lesson, is that don't fatigue Don't confuse your external customer with your internal customer. Both are important, but they fatigue at different rates, right? Your internal staff, your salespeople, they may be tired with your message, your tagline, or your campaign long before the marketplace is tired. I also think that it's important to recognize who your stakeholders are because your stakeholders might be everybody from the CEO to a junior sales or junior finance associate, and all of them have some power. You know, a junior finance associate can sink your campaign if he or she thinks that it's not sound. Everybody's got an opinion on marketing. Not everybody has an opinion on IT or on Sarbanes-Oxley or on, you know, HR compliance. But everybody's got an opinion on marketing. So what is the marketing leader that doesn't recognize the political clout, the cultural power of factions, of people peacocking? I teach in the, in the, in the book a powerful I think negotiation technique, which is I never in my tenure as CMO would bring seven vice presidents together in a meeting and pitch them all a new idea. I mean, that that was guaranteed to go down in flames because they would like I would say they would peacock or they would just you know, like be cats, you know, pawing at me. I always called them individually and I'd be pacing on my office for hours. The staff would wonder, what was I doing? You know what? I was making nine phone calls to nine separate vice presidents listening. What is your problem? What is your challenge? Here's some ideas. What do you think? Here's a campaign we're thinking about. And I would let them diffuse, almost like you know, the pressure on a tire. Any anxiety they had, let them influence the campaign. So when they did come together, live and in person, back in the olden days, or now on Zoom, there was no reason to take pleasure and taking marketing down. Now they saw themselves as being stakeholders. Now they were asking clarifying questions. So this is a good chapter about recognizing, of course, you have your external customers, but it's often your internal customers that will build your momentum, build confidence, lend you their credibility, or maybe choose to go sink some other project and not yours.
1: Well, it's so easy when you get a group of people together who've only half read, at best, whatever proposition you're putting it forward, they never understand it in the detail you do. There's no way that they could. They have their own interpretation of what it means or what it might look or where it wouldn't, you know, and here you are, they can piggyback off of each other, even sometimes unintentionally. So I've always believed that your best influence was always one-to-one. Because one-to-one, I can answer that question. I can tailor it to your particular style. I can figure out what your real concern and need is. And you'll be more direct and honest with me. And that's what you're saying here, is use your influence sales strategies one-to-one so the group coming together is more confirmation. Is that fair?
2: One is so beautifully said, Dr. Covey, of course, the co-founder of the Franklin Covey Company, said many wise things of those he said, with people, fast is slow slow is fast. So it might have taken me, you know, one hour to present to nine people probably took me nine hours to present to nine separate people. But at the end of the day, they got what they needed and we got what we needed to do also. And like I said earlier, no one is taking you down for sport or just, you know, piggybacking off of somebody else's. I smell blood in the water. I'm going to go attack as well too. Even good people, you know, have sometimes nefarious motives. So I don't think as a marketer, You can underestimate the value of that one-to-one connection. Even though sometimes it can be exhausting and feel unnecessary, the outcome is always better off. And people feel listened to. They feel heard. They feel invested. Dr. Covey said, no involvement, no commitment. And that's so true to this day.
1: I love that. No involvement, no commitment. Wow. Great. Yeah, I always say to people, you can spend your time talking to everybody one-to-one-to-one. Or you can spend your time trying to make that decision stay nailed down three weeks later. Pick your battle. It's the same amount of
2: time. Well said. You're a wise sage, Wanda.
1: (laughs) I talk to a lot of smart people, it helps. All right, let's go to challenge number 20, which is develop personas and the customer journey. Why is this important?
2: You know, I share a riotous story in the book about I was privileged to be a member of a country club in Park City, Utah. I'm still a member. That's kind of our family vacation is our country club. And uh, they hired a branding company to come in to talk about the, the, the brand persona. And so they presented to all of the homeowners like this, this picture of a, of a bicycle with a basket and a baguette in it and a bottle of Bordeaux in like the middle of Burgundy, France. I'm like, what? What is that? I don't know what that is. Uh, A a persona is exactly the kind of person who's going to move into this community, right? Is a 42-year-old physician and her husband with two kids that want a more leisurely outdoor living, but you get the point, right? So it's really vital that your buyer personas are grounded in reality, not baguettes in Bordeaux, France, and that your customer journey is also very pragmatic, I share another example of how frequently as the CMO, I would try to create lookalikes, right? So if this type of customer is buying, how can we find more of those with the same problem to maximize our efficiency? So I would ask the client partner, the salesperson, tell me how Pfizer became a client or tell me how McDonald's, and they would share a very detailed story. They knew exactly. Then I gonna call the client. The client would say, that's not what happened. No, I was actually on a plane and I picked up a magazine and I saw, I mean, it was nothing like the salesperson saw it was. So it's important to validate almost AB test. How did Pfizer become a client and why? What was the problem they were solving? What was the language they were calling it? And did our language match their language? What was it budgeted at? It might've been budgeted as a leadership development solution to solve an engagement problem, but we were calling it productivity. So it's important to make sure that your buyer personas are grounded in reality and that your customer journeys are mapped, logically and validated by the client, not just your own internal folklore.
1: All right, so let's take that one particularly in a wild step, step aside um, out of the marketing realm and into this notion of selling myself for my idea. How do you think this buyer persona or customer journey is actually relevant inside the company when I'm trying to sell an idea?
2: Well, I think you need to spend as much time selling it as you are listening. What does your internal stakeholder need? What are their challenges? What are their fears? How are they being measured? What goals do they need to accomplish? It really requires you to check your ego, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, Mm -hmm. Another thing Dr. Covey said that was so wise, that is 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 Effective leaders are more concerned with what is right than being right. Mm-hmm. And I think that's profound. I mean, I, I need to remind myself of that, you know, multiple times daily. Is if I want to be persuasive inside the firm, help someone understand how this solution can help them, I need to be really cognizant of my empathic listening skills. How many questions I ask? Are my questions on my agenda, on my timeline? on my narrative or are they questions that are relevant to unders- underscoring or discovering what the other person's needs are? Listening is an underrated leadership competency. It's an underrated marketing competency because it's so counterintuitive, right? As leaders, as marketers, we're always in communication mode, persuasion mode, influence, but we're not in listening mode. Listening isn't fun. Listening is actually selfless. Talking feels good, it's selfish. So if you think about how you're going to challenge and accomplish that, monitor your speaking to listening ratio and you'll find out how much you talk.
1: Yes, I think that's an, that is an interesting challenge. I don't know. I think listening is an underrated human capability. It's amazing competency. what it does. Honestly, every aspect of your life. It's a skill.
2: It's a developed skill, like reading a P&L or writing a value proposition. Listening is a developed leadership and, to your point, relationship company.
1: And it's, uh, you know, also, Scott, this is one of my main themes. any anyway, rate. but it's not so much just that I sat there and listened and nodded my head. It's that I can actually tell you back what it was you said, not verbatim like I got a tape recorder, but in some sort of synthesis that I can, I understood you and I can prove to you that I understood it by playing it back in a different yeah. way. Um, also. I, I just think that's secret stuff. Okay, well, when I was reading your thing about the brand persona and the customer journey, I was thinking about if we went to the trouble to think about our internal stakeholders and we developed a persona about them and about what they buy and about how they buy and about their language and about the problems they're trying to solve and about their decision-making process, not unlike what you would do with a customer journey, then would we be much further along in our ability to sell ourselves, our brand, or ideas?
2: I think you're exactly right. You would be asking probing questions appropriately on what does success look like for them, right? What pressures are they under? It it takes an extraordinary disciplined person, like I said before, to move off your own agenda and to quote you, kind of empathically move on to theirs, not just the nodding of your head, mm-hmm. but an empathic understanding where you could repeat it back to them. You could restate their point, perhaps even more eloquently than they could. You can validate someone with a, without agreeing with them, yeah. right? You can, you can empathically listen to someone without without agreeing with their position, but you bring up a great point here, Wanda, which is that if you really care about making them successful, then you will move off of your prescribed paradigm and mindset, and you'll become more nimble. I love this idea that we teach in one of the books that I co-wrote, which is that you know effective leaders are more concerned about getting results with and through other people, that they realize I'm not the gutless wonder, I'm not the genius in the room. I'm not the smartest person in the room. My job is to achieve results with and through other people. And when I understand what has been your journey, what's ahead of you, what are you trying to accomplish, I'm going to build a level of trust and influence that isn't just going to help on this project. That's currency, right, that you carry forward with that person onto the next project as well. They trust that you have their best interest in mind. You paid the price to understand their journey. You've mapped out accurately, with their help, the persona that they're, you know, moving through, whether it be their personal job, their career, their brand, their reputation, or a business goal. Right. It takes it takes you caring.
1: Yeah, it does take caring, actually, genuinely caring. It's interesting that you use the word trust because trust is not a language we often use in the marketing field. We use it in the brand, and that we want our customers to trust our brand. But if you look at some of the best research I think happening at the moment about brand and brand equity, it's really around how much do your customers trust your company, trust how you treat your employees, trust what your brand stands for, trust what your company is going to do in the environment, in the world. I mean, there's a whole lot wrapped into that. Um, And, you know, we, we know that in human relationships, but I don't think we think about it enough in terms of the sales cycle, marketing cycle.
2: And I, I think you just nailed the point, right, is that really is the goal of everything, is it not? It's to establish trust. I, I gave a keynote a year ago, back in the days where we gave live keynotes, and I had a gentleman in the, in the audience when I asked, share some things you've learned today. Not learned from me, but I reminded you of you already knew. <laughs> there was a gentleman in the audience, I wish I knew his name, and he raised his hand and he said, my key takeaway today, very sophisticated um, Uh, African-American man, probably in his 60s. And he said, I'm going to begin behaving myself into a reputation where others trust me. And I thought that was profound. I'm going to begin behaving myself into a reputation where others trust me. Because you aren't trustworthy unless someone else trusts you, right? Trust is the outcome of behaving in a trustworthy fashion, whether it's you're building a brand, you're creating a product, you're solving a solution, you've offered a promise. And uh, clients know when you're bamboozling them and they know when you are acting in a trustworthy way. And that's a currency that is more valuable than anything else possible. Right.
1: And another one that's as applicable internally as it is externally. Okay, Scott, this seems to be like a perfect place to take a break. So uh, there's many more challenges to come, 30 of them all. We won't hit all of them. My guest today is Scott Miller. The book we're talking about is Marketing Mess to Brand Success and is part of Scott's wonderful series on the mess series. I love that title. What a great one. Mess to Success series. Um, Scott currently serves as Franklin Covey's Senior Advisor on Thought Leadership, leading the strategy and development of the firm's Speakers Bureau, as well as the publication of podcasts, webcasts, and best-selling book. And we'll be right back. When we come back, I want to pick up some more about how you can use these tools to sell yourself and your ideas internally. We'll be right back.
0: at www.leadership-forum.com. You're sure to find some helpful links, videos, and more to help you create a winning strategy for your organization. Leadership Forum, helping organizations get it and keep it.
1: group and talk about career advancement and we have a master's level for people who want to take a deeper dive all on out of the we hope you'll join us
0: when it comes to business you'll find the experts here voice america business network you are listening to out of the comfort zone to reach dr wanda wallace or her guest call into the program at 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. You may also send an email to wanda.wallace at leadership-forum.com. Now, back to Out of the Comfort Zone.
1: Welcome back to the show. With me today is Scott Miller, and the book we're talking about is Marketing Mess to Brand Success. Now, Scott is coming at this book from all the things that he has seen over the course of his career as the chief marketing officer at the frankly Covings, Coven, Covey. I can't seem to say that correctly today. Business, um, as the chief marketing officer, and the mistakes he's seen, and he's make, seen others mis- make as well. But I've been pushing Scott to talk about this not just from a pure marketing point of view, but from the general perspective of how do you sell yourself, your ideas, your brand. Now, there's a piece of this I want to talk about because it surprises me. And one of those is this notion, which is challenge number Who well, right. lost it, I could, uh, right. three. Stay close to the cash, all right? And I have to tell a story on this one. Then I'll let Scott tell his own stories. This was a number of years ago, and I was pitching business to Walmart. So I'm in the headquarters offices, and I learned in visiting them that they require all of their executives to spend some time every month in a Walmart store somewhere in the world. Yeah. Because they say, as an executive, you don't actually ring the cash register. So they want them there on the front line, seeing what it takes to bring the cash in. And that is as close as I've ever seen a company have a mantra around stay close to the cash. In fact, they have at the time a little chant, which was cha-ching, cha-ching, which was around symbolizing who rings the cash register at the end of the day. All right. So that's my story, Scott. What's your insight on this one? Stay close to the cash.
2: Well, mine is very similar. As you know, prior to working for the Franklin Covey Company, I spent four years at the Disney Development Company. That's the real estate development arm of the Walt Disney Company. We built hotels, cruise ships, theme parks, cities, literally, we built a city called Celebration Florida. And you know, twice a year, if you were an executive level leader of which somehow I qualified, I don't know how, how I did, you were required to be part of their cross utilization program. You went to the theme park. You were assigned a job in the theme park for two reasons. One, usually during peak period, they could use the help, honestly, but two, For the same reason, I I cleaned toilets in Pinocchio's Playhouse one time, and I also dipped ice cream in the Borden's ice cream parlor on Main Street one time and numerous other jobs because they wanted everyone in the company. You could be building a cruise ship. They wanted you to understand what was their money-making model. How did did the cash come in the door? And so the challenge that I write about, Wanda, is really regardless of what your role is in any organization, whether you are the controller, whether you are in payroll, whether you're in analytics, you know, whether you're in supply chain, you want to make sure that you're viewed as being close to the cash, metaphorically, of course, and not as an interloper, as a faker, but that your contribution is seen as being part of the either cash generating machine or as part of the cash saving machine, right? Because it's just as important to save cash as it is to earn cash. So I really write in the book about the vital nature of marketing, that when you're in marketing, you need to make sure that the brand you're earning is that you own revenue just as much as the Iowa sales rep that has a million-dollar goal. You need to know what are the quarterly and annual goals of sales, and you should build your contribution, build your brand as if you were... Commissioned salesperson, as if you were the CFO, because it's the jobs that get eliminated when push comes to shove. A pandemic, when push comes to shove. A pandemic comes around. You know, a merger is coming up, or there just needs a tightening of the belt, which happens. You know, every eight years or so with the you know economic fluctuations. You want to make sure that you have built a brand for yourself that oh, we would never touch Wanda's job. Wanda's is too vital. Here's how she's connected to the cash flow of this company. Never lose track that cash is the most vital asset beyond people and relationships in any organization. And you can't staple brand equity to the back of the bank deposit slip. And so I evangelize to marketers, brand equity is important, but you can't fund payroll on it. I mean, I guess ultimately Procter & Gamble funds payroll, but you know, for 99% of companies, You can't staple it and take it to the bank and, you know, fund the power bill. You've got to make sure that your role is viewed as being vital to the cash assets in the organization. Right. lose track of that.
1: I think we do lose track of it, particularly when you're in a support role or an expertise role. You're not thinking about your cash generation. You're thinking about the job you're doing. This is where you get sucked at the hairball that we talked about earlier and forgetting the stream of how that goes. Um, In a lot of my clients, the word is relevance. Yeah. So, are you relevant? And I think this notion of the more closely your brand is seen as somebody who's helping drive the cash engine, then the more relevant you will be, regardless of what your job is.
2: I like the way you say that because, you know, how I wrote it, it might look like, well, it's all about the money. Of course, I don't mean that, right? I mean, the company I work for has an enormously aspirational, important mission in the world but no margin, no mission. Right. And so at the end of the day, you're absolutely right. It's, it's your relevance. Have you proven to be indispensable? Are you so connected to the profitability of the organization that they'll skip over your role, I say they, right. and move to something else?
1: Yeah. Yeah, I think that's really important. Okay, now, and that's tightly ties to one of my major complaints when I talk to so many clients. I'm stunned by this one. It's challenge number 10, and it's about augment your business acumen. All right, so I'm going to tell an unfair story on somebody. Um, I have a hobby of trying to understand in every new client, what is the real business money-making model? Like, what is it that you do? What's the value chain? I don't mean the formal value chain. I mean, what brings the money in the door? What's your growth engine here? What's the story here? And I think in most companies, even some very complicated ones, it's not that complicated if you distill it down. But I am stunned at how many people can't articulate that in a straightforward, simplistic, back of the envelope kind of way. And you talk about this need to augment your business acumen. Tell us about that and what we need to be doing.
2: Yeah, well, building on your point, I think you're right. I think that it's the smartest people that undercomplicate everything, it's the less smart people that have the need to overcomplicate the value proposition, right? How you explain what you actually do. If, if I can't understand, what you do, then no one can, because I'm pretty simple-minded. So I think you're right, is it's the best leaders that don't need to complicate it. Right? It's the best companies that undercomplicate it. Keep it simple. This chapter really is around in marketing, as in human resources, as in IT, as in any organization, any part of the company, you need to be intimately acquainted with what is your company's money-making model. It's a very famous author we know, of course, named Ram Charan. He wrote many books, Leadership Pipeline, Boards That Work, uh, What the CEO Wants You to Know. Ram Charan is that sort of globetrotting American executive, a Northwestern former professor, a friend of mine, an advisor to our firm. He wrote a book called What the CEO Wants You to Know. Brilliant, simple book. And he says, you know, there's five parts in every money-making model, cash, margin, customers velocity, and growth. Cash, margin, customers, velocity, meaning like inventory turns, and growth. And every company has one or more of these money-making models. Some have more importance than others. But to your tee-up, Wanda, if you want to be relevant, then you need to pay the price to intimately understand the business of your business. And how do you know the economic drivers of your organization? How are you aligned with and attached with the key economic moneymakers of your firm? And it starts with your own business acumen, right? Knowing how to read a P&L. And in the book, I kind of share a bit of my mess. I was 31 until I knew how to really read a P&L, right? What was the difference between gross margin and net margin? What was the difference between EBITDA and EBIT? And why did they matter? And I had to go over to accounting and I actually had to sit down. I was leading a $40 million division. And I really did not intimately understand a p and I didn't have a graduate degree, I'm not an MBA, right? I have an undergrad and communications degree, very competent sales marketing. But the more that I paid the price, checked my ego and had finance and accounting teach me all of the different components and lines and how to read and how to actually work a PL and l ethically work at P&L, my business relevance shot up because now I really realized where my key levers were, right? Not just, I mean, it might be that one quarter I chose to focus on my cost of goods and I was less focused on my revenue because it was going to drive profitable EBITDA, which I was paid on. Right. So it doesn't matter what level you are in the organization, pay the price to move outside your comfort zone. Take no shame walking over to finance and say, you know, can I ask you a favor? I take a half an hour of your time whenever you're able could you walk me through the company's p l could you walk me through the cash flow statement for that matter what's the difference and what are the things i need to know in my role now but more importantly what are the things i need to know in my future roles that would help get me promoted as i understand how to become more intimate with the levers of the company you will build your relevance like never before if you speak the language of business and become really comfortable. I'm not great with numbers, right? I, I can't calculate uh, puts and calls. I don't know how to do currency valuations and fluctuations, but I can basically, well, quite adeptly now, manage a P&L. But don't be afraid of your lack of knowledge. Have someone gentle, kind, explain it to you. And as I do in the chapter, I use a hot dog cart as the, a as the very simple example And I think it's crucial to growing your business relevance and your brand. Right.
1: Right. Absolutely. It's a great example, too, in the book. Um, I recently interviewed a woman who's now a general manager in a very large company, and she's running a huge division. The first time she took on a general management job, though, she said, I don't think my financial acumen is as strong as it needs to be. So she did one of the most clever things I've ever heard. So people regularly say, and "Go to the finance person and have them walk you through in the p and l and so on. She is smarter than that. She went to the CFO of the company and said, "I'm about to take on this job. What are the ten questions I should be asking my finance person on a regular basis and how often? how What a clever yeah. way of saying, yeah. what should my finance person be yeah. telling me, and what should I be asking about?" Yeah. Same idea, go ask, that's what they're there for, and they usually love somebody who wants to know what they do.
2: Love that. And and the CFO of any organization, if they're worth their weight in character and competence, they will love the fact that you've asked these questions because they want you to be more competent in the world that they speak, right? They want you to be again in their boat rowing with them. If you ever had an experience that was poor. Asking that question, you got the wrong CFO. you got the wrong person in that role,
1: right? <laughs> exactly. Exactly yeah. right. Okay. So now I'm going to move on to some less marketing. Well, there's still marketing things, but we're going to take a turn. And I want to deliver on my promise about how do you actually really sell something? So let's talk about um, Challenge 23, leverage your promoters.
2: Yeah. You know, in the, in the book, I write a lot about how a lot of us have external promoters, we also have internal promoters, right? You have your, your, your staff that are your brand ambassadors, whether they know it or not. And so the first part of this conversation should be making sure that everyone in the organization recognizes that they are a promoter or a detractor. And I share some stories on some airlines of maybe some well-intended employees that were you know, disparaging their airline. I'm listening to them talk about what a crappy airline they work for. And so you've got to make sure culturally you set down the imperative that everybody that works for this firm is an ambassador, not just on the job, but off the job. Mm-hmm. And then the big, big idea in the, in the chapter, of course, is how important it is to leverage your promoters. I think in so many organizations, we're always on the hunt for new business, new logos, new customers that we've kind of forget who brought us to the dance, so to speak. Right. My dad <laughs> would always say, you know, don't forget where your bread is buttered or whatever that, Adage was. Mm -hmm. And it's important, it's vital that we spend as much time listening and taking care of our current clients as we do on the hunt for new clients. My wife and I moved to this new home and we hired an interior designer to help us with the move. It was a fairly big move. And our designer was telling us that just recently he'd fired a landscape company. They used to give a bunch of work to because the landscape company. I'd kind of outgrown him but he's st- but he still referred you know a couple million dollars a year he fired him and the owner came in and complained why they said are you kidding me i haven't seen you in three years you haven't been to my office in three years we referred like three and a half million dollars of business to you last year you haven't been in my office and so this is not a, an epiphany right this is good homespun wisdom around making sure you are taking care of your current customers that you're treating them as well as you are the person who just came in, right? I mean, look at the cell phone business, right? I mean, everybody who's now switching their plan is getting a better rate than you are, right? The the loyal customers are treated the worse,
1: And I I get it, You you
2: can't manage millions and millions of customers the way you'd like to in some industries, but there is great value in understanding how impactful your promoters can be for you and how impactful your detractors can be. Right. I reference, you know, Fred Reicheld's work around the net promoter score, NPS. Mm-hmm. Franklin Covey actually holds the license to that organizationally. And you can turn a detractor into a promoter very quickly with transparency and honesty and an apology mm-hmm. and taking responsibility for your mistakes. And you also can turn a promoter very quickly into a detractor if you dismiss them, if you don't value them. It's just kind of, again, homespun wisdom to remind yourself of some of the key principles that are fundamental to business generationally.
1: If I take that though internally and I start to look at my own brand inside the company, and I think about the range of people who would go on my promoter list, Some of them are younger in the organization. Some of them are my peers. Some of them are seniors. And we always think about the seniors, but we never forget the rest of those promoters out there who say, hey, look, I loved working with Scott and I'd work with him again, or he was a great boss and I'd go join him again. So you think about your list of promoters, but then equally to think about your list of detractors and what's their biggest complaint and what do you want to do about it? Now, it's not I'm advocating you make everybody happy. But I also don't think we think enough about why somebody's a tractor and what I need to do to kind of convert some of those over into a positive camp. And your comment about the net promoter score is very valid.
2: Beautiful tee up. I interviewed Adam Grant on my podcast last week. Of course, wrote the book, Think Again. And he talked about how often of us have our group of supporters. But none of us have our group of challengers, people who maybe dislike us, mm-hmm. or even don't agree with us. To your point, if you want to raise your brand, if you want to build trustworthy relationships, you will insightfully identify who are your promoters and keep them as such, all levels in the organization. Tend to them, nurture them, invest in them, give them a reason to keep promoting you. But equally as much, you will be aware of your detractors. I know our time is ending here. i I'm never... I'm never surprised anymore. I'll be giving a speech in front of 7,000 people, and I'll say, You know, raise your hand if you've got a best friend at work or a promoter. Everyone, every hand goes up. Raise your hand if you know of someone who doesn't like you at work. And like, no hands go up. Yeah, right. And I say, Are you kidding me? I know like 40 people who do not like me at Franklin Covey. I know eight who probably detest me after 25 years. I'm self aware. Now I choose whether or not I need to engage them, win them back over. Some people aren't winnable, right? But to your previous tee up, knowing who your detractors are is the key to self-awareness. That's the key to knowing what's it like to be on a launch team with you? What's it like to be on a business trip, stand at a trade show with you? What's it like to be on a Zoom call with you or, or develop a new offering? What's it like to co-manage a client with you? Identifying your detractors. Externally and internally exactly. is key to a successful career. Great, regardless of what role you're in.
1: All right, and for the record, it's not to silence those detractors. No, it's to learn from them and to hear what they have to say, and then think about where, where, and if I want to make adjustments. I love it. I love that. Okay, Scott. We are running out of time. Sadly, 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 I just have to tell you the other challenges that really struck me and I'm just going to list them because we don't have time to talk about it. Develop your storytelling craft, yes, because everything you're doing is a story, internally and externally. And If you can't tell it as a story, nobody will remember it, most importantly, or do anything about it. Um, Speak their language. We've already talked about the need to speak their language. More is not better. Better is better. I love that one. Lots of stuff won't work and bruise hard, heal fast. It's just a sampling of the many kind of messes to successes we get in Scott's latest book. Scott, always a joy having you on the show. Great fun. My guest today, Scott Miller, the book that we're talking about, Marketing Mess to Brand Success. It's part of the lovely Franklin Coven sponsored Mess to Success series. And Scott is also host of the Franklin Covey sponsored On Leadership with Scott Miller. It's the world's largest and fastest growing leadership podcast. Fabulous show, highly recommended. Scott, thank you.
2: I want to thank you for turning your spotlight on to me. I'm grateful for the platform again.
1: Always fun to talk to you anytime. So if you'd like to learn more about this or to apply this, join us in our new subscription service at outofthecomfortzone.com and join us next week for more wisdom in getting out of your comfort zone.
0: Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.